This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. David Granite, and welcome to Health Matters. We're going to talk today about the leading cause of disability worldwide. 35 million people suffer from this. Now, am I talking about arthritis? Am I talking about gastric cancer? No, I'm talking about depression. We're going to see if there are new things on the, on the horizon for that. And to talk to us about some of the breakthroughs that are coming, we have with us one of the world's top experts, Dr. Abraham Palmer. And, and you're a real doctor, a PhD, uh-huh. uh, and uh, as, as we MDs say, a real doctor. Uh, Dr. Palmer is a uh, professor of psychiatry and vice chair in charge of research. Vice chair of basic research. Basic research yeah. uh, for the Department of Psychiatry. Okay. You've earned those titles. I want to make sure that we get those right. right. Um, and uh, it, it's astonishing to me when we start talking about depression and I look at it that it's somewhere around one in six adults will suffer depression in their lifetime. Uh, women are more likely to become depressed than men. That's right. Younger, more likely than older. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that, it's, it, this is a big, impactful problem. It's a huge problem. And I mean, you know, it... it causes misery, right, which is really the, the, the crux of the matter. It causes economic hardship. It disrupts people's familial and work obligations. Yeah, it's a huge, huge problem, and it's worldwide. It's not cultural. It's not specific to the first world. It's a, it's a worldwide problem that's been with us as long as we've been human. Depression. People, yeah. I think, think they know what depression is, yeah. but I'm not sure they do. Yeah. What is depression? You know, it's funny, major depressive disorder, as it's defined in the DSM, is a constellation of symptoms, and you have to have several of this list of symptoms. And some of the symptoms would appear to be contradictory, like sleeping too much or sleeping too little. Okay? So isn't that a funny thing, that you could actually be too much or too little, and both of them would be consistent? Increase in appetite, decrease in appetite. So it's really probably a very heterogeneous disorder, and one of the challenges in treating it is that it's probably not one biological entity. It's probably a number of different biological entities, maybe related to one another, um, but it's going to be hard to have a, a magic bullet to treat all of them if it's not one thing. Yeah, in medicine, we're doing this more and more where we're recognizing that uh, the phenotypical expression of whatever's going on uh-huh. may represent multiple different processes that get you to the same endpoint. Yeah, right. Are we going to eventually have, you know, different depressive subtypes that you're going to say are, should be treated completely differently uh, that you feel like even from a genetic standpoint and moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, that, is that where this is all going? Yeah, I mean, I think as a field, that's right. And, and in medicine, we're thinking about personalized medicine and we're thinking about not having so many catch-alls where we assume that everybody is an interchangeable part, they're all depressed. And you might imagine that you could use genetic information, you could maybe use other kinds of diagnostic tests uh, to discriminate between different categories. What's the difference between depression and anxiety? Because they seem to get lumped together often. Yeah. Depression and anxiety are clinically distinguished from one another. Interestingly, genetically, they seem to be almost interchangeable. Hmm. So the genetic risk for depression and the genetic risk for anxiety disorders is almost unity, uh, which gives us some insight into the underlying biology, probably. So same root cause, different Mm -hmm. manifestations. Yeah, that's right. And to some extent, different treatments are effective for the two. So, Even though they may have the same 
genetic cause. Yeah, paradoxically. Um, so <laughs> I love it. I mean, welcome yeah. to medicine, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that's right. And welcome to our own ignorance, really. Yeah. Um, SSRIs can be used to treat depression, but also anxiety. But then we have benzodiazepines, drugs like uh, uh, Valium and Xanax, um, which can treat anxiety, but don't appear to be very useful in treating depression. So there's a little bit of a, a confusing, you know, there's a lack of symmetry there. Uh, that will come up later in our discussion. Absolutely. And, yeah. and you've alluded to it already, talking about genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for there are people who get injured and they, they can't function in a normal way, sure. which is an environmental impact. Yep. So we have that old nature-nurture sort of mm-hmm. concept. Mm-hmm. How does that fit into the treatment of depression, the genetics versus the environment? Uh, you know, the treatment right now, I think, is agnostic to the cause of the depression. You could imagine that you might have some people that are depressed because they had such genetic loading that it was very likely they would become depressed in life. And you have others that might have been average or even somewhat resistant, but so many bad things have happened or so many triggering events have occurred in their life that they end up at that same endpoint. Right now, we're going to treat those people the same. We have a very limited repertoire of drugs, and they're either going to respond to those treatments or they're not. That's, you, that's, un, that's the unfortunate state of affairs. If you take all comers that are diagnosed with depression, yeah. is there a percentage you can say is more environmental or more genetic? Or uh-huh. Those are important distinctions that people are working on. Uh, I would say that the risk for depression is less than 50% genetic, right? The heritability of depression is less than 50%. So it's, uh, you, you could use that to argue that it was somewhat more environmental than genetic. Fair but there's enough. a very strong, very well-established genetic basis to depression, and it, and it runs in families. I mean, that's something that we all know from our life experience. Sure. There are some families where there are multiple affected individuals. So now we, we know that depression's not good. Yes. <laughs> and, I'm opposed uh, to right. it. And, and, uh, and obviously, the longer it goes and the worse it gets, we have things like suicide and lost mm-hmm. wages and all that. So now we get to treatment and, yeah. and wanting to help that person in a relatively prompt fashion. Yeah. Um, you, you talked about medications, but before we get there, I want to talk about non-medical treatment, okay, behavioral sure. treatments, etc. Very cetera. reasonable, yeah. Those tend to be long and slow. Long and slow and, of course, expensive. From an economic perspective, the people that are going to administer those sorts of treatments are highly trained and, and expensive. And, and uh, successful? Uh, the, the success of treating depression is a, is a tough one, unfortunately. In pharmacological studies of antidepressants, the trouble is how well people do under the placebo treatment. Okay, so you admit people to the study, they're all quite depressed, you would not have had them in the study if they weren't depressed. Sure. And if you do nothing, they'll start to get better. If you tell them we're giving you something and it might be a treatment, they start to get better. If you give them an antidepressant, your hope is they'll get better at a somewhat faster rate than they would have gotten better anyway. Is this there... is not to trivialize depression. It's a huge, really important problem. Sure. But it, it waxes and wanes. It's a, it's a condition that's coming in and out. Uh, over the course of an individual's lifetime. And that makes it harder to study because your drug has to be better than doing nothing. And doing nothing, uh, paradoxically, is somewhat effective. And, and the complexity of this is, uh-huh. is highlighted by what you're describing, uh, you know, th- those changes. So, I mean, this is, again, the, the actual pitch for science and, and mm-hmm. to understand how science works yeah. and what it means to do a study, yeah. to be able to separate this data out. Otherwise, we are all just whistling in the wind and not really knowing what's happening. You talked about some of the, tr- the medical treatments. Mm-hmm. Right, that, that We know it's long and slow to do the behavioral treatment. Yep. Um, we talked, uh, you referred to the medical treatments that um, sometimes just 
thinking that you might be getting help is a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. So now we have these SSRIs, tricyclics, MAO inhibitors, yeah. all these drugs that are out there. They don't work right away. Yes. Yes. They take weeks and weeks. That's right. And, and, and during that time, you don't know if it's going to work. During that time, something happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, we, and you're exactly right. Something happens, and we don't know what that something is, and we don't know whether it will work or not, and a significant fraction of people won't be helped by the drugs that we give them. Yeah, it looked like some, there's like a third of the people respond to the first drug they get. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I read that as two-thirds of the people don't. Yes, I think that's a fair interpretation. <laughs> you know, and, and, and sometimes it's dose, right? Of course, we could increase the dose of the drug we're giving them, or we could change to a different drug. But we, we, don't, we can't predict that right now. And when you increase the dose of a drug, yeah. there's generally increased side effects. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and I'm just imagining someone with depression mm-hmm. having a physician say, here's medication that you need, yeah. and having it not work. Yep. That would make me feel worse. Yes. And, yes. And, and, I mean, the, the, the placebo positive effect. Now, uh-huh. I, all of a sudden, I got something and it didn't help me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can imagine that would be and, and it took me three or four weeks to figure that out. Yeah, I agree. And the initiation energy for a patient to get into the doctor's office in the first point and confront this and say, I think this is a, a medical level problem. Right. So that took a long time to get there. And then you're right. The frustration of having to wait a long time with a lot of uncertainty about whether it will work. Those categories of drugs I mentioned were the yeah. same ones I learned about in medical school a couple of decades ago. Yes. There are new names, but they're the same categories. Yeah. It's the same drugs. Yeah. Um, there's nothing, am I right? There's not been that much new that's been going on? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so there's a lot of excitement around ketamine, right? And, and that, you know, that's one of the few new things that's happening. But yes, it is basically the same usual suspects getting new hats. Right. So this leads us to what you've uh-huh. been doing in your lab. That's right. Yeah. Um, and clearly uh, there's a need for something that can work faster. Yes. Um, and so uh, you have, have, have looked at this and, and you have a new approach, a new idea. Right. Right. Tell us how you, how you thought of the new idea. I, I don't want to say stumbled upon yeah. because, you know, this is years of science coming to fruition. Right, right. So how do you uh, get I, I'd there? like you to say stumbled upon because we stumbled upon it. Okay. And, and in fact, that's the way progress in science often goes is you're, you're working on a problem and you have some idea what you're working on. But if you're paying attention, you'll see opportunities as you progress through that. And that's my, really... My mom used to say, if you put yeah. enough pots of water on the stove, yes. one of them boils. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. one boiled. Yeah, the one of them boiled. That's right. just right. Yeah. Uh, this project started about 10 years ago, and we were working in mice, and we were interested in a phenomenon that exists in all species, which is that not only are there uh, differences in the DNA where individual bases are different. So at a point where I might have an A, you may have a C. Sure. Okay, Individual nucleotides differ, and that's yes. one of the sources of genetic diversity in any population. But another source that was just beginning to be appreciated 10 years ago is that there are regions that are actually duplicated in some individuals relative to another. So I might have one copy of a gene. You might have two copies of it, okay? Or you might have no copies of it. You might have a deletion of it relative to me. And that's an additional source of genetic diversity that was harder to measure. And so 10 years ago, it was becoming fashionable to start to look for examples of where duplications and deletions changed phenotypes, changed things that we're interested in biologically. We were looking in mice, and we didn't have in mind any particular phenotype we were going to look for, other than that we were going to try to find regions that were deleted or duplicated. And so we looked in some commonly used strains of mice. These are very inbred strains of mice in the same way that breeds of dogs are very inbred. 
And they differ from one to another. And we identified regions that were deleted or duplicated using a kind of sophisticated and we thought very clever technical approach to do this. But it doesn't matter. We, okay. yeah. <laughs> right. You don't need to know. We identified some regions that were uh, duplicated in some of the mice that we were studying relative to others that we were studying. And they were big regions. They were about half a megabase, so about half a million bases, which is considered big for this kind That's of a, a phenomenon. Yeah. And uh, they contained multiple genes. So there were multiple genes, and we said, hey, some of these mice have got two copies of these genes, whereas others have one. And we had a number of findings like that, and we wanted to attach some consequence to some of these regions that we found. And so we looked at this one, and we said, well, I wonder if that duplication of those genes changes the abundance of the gene products, that is, the mRNAs that are made from genes that are transcribed, and ultimately the proteins that are made from you those mRNAs. You have factories producing it. Do you have more Absolutely, of that's right, yeah. And so we saw that, yes, for this particular region, we could see that there was more, more of the genes were being made as a result of the extra copies. And one of those genes was called GLOW1, glaxylase 1. And it caught my attention because I had happened to read a paper about it just a few months ago. And the paper claimed that some mice express more GLOW1, they have more mRNA being made from that gene than other mice, and that the mice that express more GLOW1 are more anxious. Okay? okay? And I said, well, that's interesting, and I'm interested in anxiety to some extent, and so we thought that might be cool. And as I started to read about it, I found that there was a second group that was publishing papers about GLOW-1 and anxiety, and they said the more GLOW-1 these mice express, the less anxious they are. And I thought, okay, that's probably, probably both things are not true. Right. Probably <laughs> it either makes you more anxious, it makes you less anxious, maybe it does nothing, but it's probably not true that more of it makes you both more and less anxious, okay? Yes. And they were using very similar measures of anxiety. So I said, well, this is cool because we now have the molecular cause for differences in GLOW-1 expression. That is, these duplications in the genome, that's the reason that they had more GLOW-1. The, the groups actually didn't know if the GLOW-1 was causing the anxiety or maybe it was a consequence of the anxiety. They didn't have any causal arrows there. Sure, understood. So now we had a molecular handle on this, and we could at least say the causal arrow is going to be from the duplicated region to the anxiety. And we should be able to figure out, one, if that's true, and two, we should be able to resolve this question about the direction. So you could either block it, make more of it, and start changing to see what happened. Yeah. This is a great insight into how science happens. This is how science happens. Is, that's yeah, this exactly is, this right. Is the, this is a, a series of interesting observations. It's beautiful to hear it happen because it's messier than people think. It's very messy. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we thought to ourselves, maybe it's not even GLOW-1. GLOW-1, remember, is one of four genes in this duplicated region. So maybe GLOW-1 is the one everybody's noticed for any number of reasons, but it could be one of the other three genes in the region. And the other thing we knew is that when there's a big duplication like that, a big change in the genome, even the neighbors not directly affected can be altered. Their expression or their sure. regulation can be altered. So we said, we really need to nail this down. Is it GLOW-1 or not? Okay? And so for that, uh, to do that, we made transgenic mice. We actually made mice where we inserted copies of this whole duplicated region, but now they were copies where we had used a technique called recombineering to kill the neighboring genes so they wouldn't be expressed. So you could isolate the one gene you wanted exactly to That's exactly right. So we could see, is GLOW-1 sufficient to cause this anxiety? Okay? So we made, it turned out, eight different mice, independent insertion events, so where it lands in the genome is different in each of the eight lines, and that means that the neighbor kind of hypothesis would be, you know, averaged out over these eight different events. Again, science. Science. <laughs> and yes, in fact, the, 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 we saw very consistently that more copies of GLOW-1 led to more anxiety-like behavior. So we resolved, one, is GLOW-1 really it? Yes, it is. It's sufficient. And two, the direction problem. 
more which, global warming, more yeah, exactly. Right. Which direction is it more anxious or less anxious? So then, obviously, the third yeah. question was: if we stop this, yes, will will they not become anxious? Yeah, 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 yeah. And we'll and we'll get to that. We tried to delete the gene. That was one of the things that we did in parallel with making these additional copies of it. We couldn't get live animals that had the gene deleted. And we concluded that maybe the gene is so important that removing a copy of it is just too severe and the animals are, are never born. And, and that's still what we believe to be the case. That's interesting because yeah. nature has a way of protecting the genes it wants. Some genes are really important. Right. That's right. And you're just not allowed to delete them. And this seems to be one of them. So you're sitting there with this cool knowledge yes. that, that you've identified and isolated. You've done yeah. the hard science work to figure that out. And what yeah. you did wasn't easy. I mean, you, you made it sound yeah. easy. Sure. We just made transgenic nice. We, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's, you know, a lot of work. It's uh, a lot and, of work. And, yes. a, and a, a whole laboratory that's funded by dollars that have to mm-hmm. come in and, yes. and yeah, lots right. of insight and science. Yep. Going on. And Again. I should say, a terrific graduate student who's doing this part of our story named Margaret Disler, who was yeah. an MD, PhD student at the time. And it, it was her hands that made those mice and tested those mice. The team matters. Yeah. Uh, it really does yeah. matter. And um, funding matters, which is why true. NIH dollars, et cetera, and other funding sources matter so much in this world. Matter enormously. Yeah. So, so now what do you take it to the next step? Okay, that's right. So uh, I had the entire time, I had been sort of rooting for Glow One not to be the cause of anxiety. And I'll tell you why. I haven't said... The unbiased any- researcher, I like Yeah, it. you know, I mean, I, I, everyone has some bias. So because so, I thought Glow One was a stupid gene to be implicated in anxiety because it's ancient. It's so old that both plants and animals have it. So before the divergence of the plant and animal kingdoms, Glow One was already a gene. Why do animals need to be anxious? Why yeah, do plants, I, I plant, need plants to be anxious? Exactly. Yeah. Plants are probably not anxious, as right. far as I can tell. And so I thought... That, that, that counts against it, okay? Um, what does GLOW-1 do? The only thing that it was known to do at the time was get rid of some stupid thing called methylglyoxal. When you do glycolysis, that is breaking down sugars to make ultimately ATPs, uh, you produce methylglyoxal, this little molecule, small, highly reactive molecule, non-enzymatically. So there's no enzyme making methylglyoxal. It's just a reaction that happens on its own as one of the intermediate steps. You realize that everybody yes. listening just yeah. heard you say sugar and went, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah sugar, <laughs> I know. And they're, they're, you yeah. know. So we're going to connect that back eventually. We will eventually get back to sugar. That's right. So when you're doing glycolysis, you make methylglyoxal. And the one thing that was known about GLOW-1 when we started doing this work is it gets rid of methylglyoxal. Okay? It, it helps to convert it into D-lactate, which is sort of a harmless thing to have around to sell. And I thought, well, that's one boring. It's kind of got a housekeeping function. It's like the janitor gene or something like that. And two, there's no way that I can relate that to anything I know about anxiety. And so I was skeptical. And in fact, Margaret, this graduate student who I alluded to, spent about 18 years, 18 years, (laughs) felt like 18 years, 18 months of her thesis uh, pursuing all kinds of wrong ideas that we had about why methylglyoxal might change anxiety. And I won't bore you with them except to say that they were all wrong. And eventually, we had this seminal moment where Margaret and I were in the office, and we were trying to figure out, what do we know? We know that more GLOW-1 makes you more anxious. We know that more GLOW-1 should reduce methylglyoxal levels, okay? So maybe, then, you'd expect methylglyoxal to reduce anxiety, okay? Right. And the key moment was that she opened a Sigma catalog. This is a chemical company that sells chemicals to labs like ours. And she said, look at this. You can buy methylglyoxal from Sigma. We We knew. (laughs) Yeah, we we had both assumed it was really highly reactive, and there'd be no way to put it in a bottle. So as soon as we saw that you could buy it, and by the way, it was inexpensive, which was a nice surprise. It may not stay that way. (laughs) Chemicals can sometimes be very expensive. This was very inexpensive. So we ordered a liter of it, which was far more than we needed for any of our studies, but a liter was only about $42. So we ordered a liter of methylglyoxal, and we administered it to mice to see would they become less anxious. And within 10 minutes, the mice were less anxious. Please don't try this at home, right? I yes, mean, no, okay. this is, yes, this is not yet ready for, for human use because right. the safety of this has not been established. But 
the mice were almost immediately less anxious, which, by the way, threw out most of the things she had spent the last 18 months working on, all of which required a longer time She loved you right that moment. Well, we were happy to know something finally after a long period of not knowing anything. But yeah, so then we established that the substrate, the thing that this enzyme gets rid of, methylglyoxal, was itself anxiolytic or decreased anxiety. And that's why more of the enzyme, which gets rid of methylglyoxal, would make you more anxious because you'd have less methylglyoxal. The other thing that you said that that hit me immediately was you saw a change pretty quickly. Yes. Yeah. All these medicines, everything else we talked about, it took a long time yeah, yeah, yeah. to change. You, you, you fed it to, that, to the, these animals. Injected, and, yeah. Yeah, you injected it, and you saw it pretty quickly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Although, remember, we're talking about anxiety right now. So Still. Anxiety uh, can be treated quickly, unlike depression. If we have an anxiolytic drug like Xanax, you could take that drug and feel less anxious within minutes. And so that's the, that's the kind of effect that we're seeing here. Yes. Uh, yes, but so this was very exciting to us, and we thought, why would this funny thing, methylglyoxal, change anxiety? We still didn't know that. And we were giving different doses of it to the animals to kind of get a sense for the dose-response function. That is, as you change dose, what happens to the response? And we saw that at higher doses, about twice the anxiety-reducing dose, we got locomotor depression. The animals got kind of sleepy and moved around a little bit less. And at six times the anxiety-reducing dose, so now a very high dose, they got ataxic, which means they looked like they were drunk, they couldn't walk on a balance beam, various funny tests that we do with mice. And they started to get hypothermic. Their body temperature dropped a degree or two. I had previously worked on alcohol, ethanol, uh, as a research topic, not not as a vocation or a hobby. (laughs) Good. And... uh, And uh, that's very characteristic of drugs that act at the GABA-A receptor, like ethanol, like uh, benzodiazepines, like Xanax, barbiturates, et cetera. And so we thought maybe, just maybe, methylcoaxal is somehow acting at GABA-A receptors. That was all we knew. Margaret had a friend, Lee Plant, very bright guy, completely different kind of scientist. He works on individual uh, nerve cells grown in culture, and he patch clamps them, which means he takes an incredibly small electrical uh, pipette. Right on it. pokes it through the cell membrane, the cell is still alive, and now we can measure the electrical potential across that membrane, okay? That's uh, how you would measure the effects of a GABA-A agonist or a GABA-A acting drug, because what GABA does is it opens channels, allows negatively charged chloride ions in, and hyperpolarizes the neurons. And this did affect it. And so we said to Lee, we said the following, Lee, we've got this thing methylglyoxal, we think it's a GABA-A agonist, could you just test it in your preparation and see whether or not that's true? It was a long shot for us, but we thought, we know it's only going to take him a day or two. We don't want to reveal to him how uncertain we are about whether or not it's really a GABA-A. Sure. So we'll kind of bluff a little bit. So Lee emails us back a day or two later, beautiful, perfect figures. It's like, oh yeah, it is a GABA-A agonist. It's about a third as potent as GABA, and it's blocked when I use a drug that blocks the action of GABA itself. It also blocks the action of methylglyoxal. Bingo. Huge breakthrough. GABA-A is the target for most of the anxiolytic drugs that we currently have to use in humans. So as soon as we knew that methylglyoxal was hitting GABA-A, we understood why it would be anxiolytic. And the whole story for the first time came into focus for us. Love it. Well, in in the few minutes we have left, I want to make sure that we talk about depression. Okay, great. So now you have to make the link from anxiety to depression. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So there were some... uh, There were some papers out there that had observed that in animals, when you gave them antidepressant drugs, you saw differences in GLOW-1 expression, and those differences in GLOW-1 expression in response to the antidepressant drugs were correlated with the antidepressant effects that you saw in the animals using behavioral measures. 
It was the only suggestion that GLOW-1 could be associated with depression. And traditionally, as I mentioned earlier, anxiolytic drugs aren't antidepressants. So given that we had a GABA-A mechanism, we had reason to think this shouldn't be antidepressant. That would sort of be the dogma. But we said, well, let's check. And there are some quick tests to look at antidepressant effects in rats, or in mice, rather. And so we use these, and they have to do with suspending animals by their tail and seeing when they struggle and putting them in a little, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Not even stress them out, but what they're supposed to do if you're getting an antidepressant effect is they're supposed to keep struggling in the face of a sort of an impossible problem, which is you're suspended by your tail. Got it. It's just a five-minute test, very brief test. Um, And yes, the GABA, so so I haven't told you, but we had small molecules that inhibit GLOW-1, and these GLOW-1 inhibitors showed up as being antidepressant. And our genetic manipulations showed up as being pro or antidepressant, depending on which direction we were pushing GLOW-1 in. And, and rapidly, relatively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so these are what we call assay models. These are models that show the effects of currently used antidepressant drugs within 30 minutes of administration. So they're definitely not reflecting that miraculous thing that must happen that leads to an antidepressant effect. They're, they're uh, probably measures of some much more proximal event. But we then went to look at... Uh, tests that are sensitive only to the chronic effects, only to the long-term effects of antidepressants, and we use these GLOW-1 inhibitors. And that was where the real surprise came in, is that we saw that not only did they show up as antidepressants on those tests, but they were effective much sooner than any of the conventional antidepressants. Which, as we talked about earlier, is a big yes, deal. Would be a, is a big deal, because one of the real problems with our ability to treat depression is how long it takes. So here we have a compound that looks antidepressant, it's coming at it from a different mechanism. It's which we also talked about treat, we haven't seen in a long time. That's right. It's also going to treat anxiety, potentially, which is very comorbid with depression. They tend to occur together. And, you would expect and it's it going to be, happen faster. And you would expect to be tolerated, given the mechanisms that you've discussed. So far, we have no indication of any, any negative side effects of this treatment, although that's clearly a critical question before we take it into humans, is to clearly establish the safety. From the time you started to where we are now, yeah. how long did that take? That's probably about 10 years. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> to put it in perspective for <laughs> yes, people, right. uh, that this is, a, this is a big deal with the, mm-hmm. the, the, what's going on in science. And, and I loved the way you laid this out. What's the next step before this ends up in people's pharmacies? We're very excited about this. We need to get better GLOW-1 inhibitors. And so right now I'm spending a lot of time talking to medicinal chemists, a specialty of chemistry where they're good at designing drug-like molecules. We need to get something that has a long half-life so you don't have to take it every 20 minutes. We need to have something that's orally available, so you could take it as a pill, not an injection. And we need to have something that's safe. As we get through those steps, we'll have something that we can actually get permission from the FDA to try in humans to, one, determine its safety, and two, determine its efficacy. And that could still be years. Oh, that'll be years and years. Right. That'll be years and years of very hard and, I have to say, expensive work. That's right. right. So, again, the funding becomes... The funding is ongoingly important. That's right. The funding is critical. Well, thank you so much for taking a few minutes with us, but more importantly for what you're doing in your lab and and your enthusiasm for it uh, and sharing with us. Thanks again for joining us. And knowledge really is power. I'm Dr. David Granite, and we'll see you again next time right here on Health Matters. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.